Bible Quest, the Tuesday edition. I'm your host, Jonathan Sadler, and I've got Justin Dobbs with me today right now. How are you doing, Justin? Doing well. Doing well, thank God. How are you? Good. I'm doing well. It's good to see you. Uh, and Scott Smelser should be joining us uh, in just a few minutes, but we'll go ahead and get started uh, without him. We're going to be back in the Gospel of Mark today. So before we jump back into that, we're in Mark chapter 11. If you have a Bible with you, you can turn over there and get ready. But we want to invite our viewers, again, like we always do in our uh, broadcasts, if you want to interact with us on the show uh, while we're here live, you can do that on the YouTube page. Uh, just comment into the the live chat, and we'll be watching that as we keep moving forward. Any questions or comments you have about the text or what we're discussing, and if anything comes to you afterwards, after we go uh, off for the day, you can visit our website anytime, BibleQuest.tv, and ask us your comments and questions there. Uh, so we're in Mark chapter 11. I was just saying to Justin, we recently talked about this story on BibleQuest, although it was from the Gospel of Matthew, so there's going to be a lot of overlap, but still... Uh, some good things to get here and, and maybe some different angles of looking at this story. So I can just start out by reading uh, this section. It's the first uh, 10 or 11 verses or so of Mark chapter 11. So it says, Now when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of the disciples and he said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and he will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those who were standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they immediately brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread out their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, I lost my place. Verse nine. Uh, and those who were before, who went before them and followed them were shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming of his kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. All right. So like I said, we read that, we've read that story recently, uh, here, uh, what do you guys want to point out or pull out of this? What, what what should we focus on? What's important in this paragraph? Well, leading up to this, uh, in, in Mark 10, um, Jesus, back in verse 32, was going up to Jerusalem. It says they were all amazed and even afraid. Uh, I, I think they remember, even if they don't understand, that Jesus is going in and he claims that he's going to be killed in Jerusalem. Uh, he's going to be delivered over to death, even to the Gentiles. So the the shame, the mockery, uh, the suffering, and then the, the untimely death, I think it's probably still heavy on their minds. But then he says, no, I've got this thing that I need to do. I need to go, need to go get me a donkey's colt. And it just seems so odd, uh, the whole thing. And if I'd been one of the disciples, I, I don't know, you may go in and find this random Colt, but you happen to know exactly where it is. And if the owner says, No, what are you doing with my donkey's colt? You're supposed to tell them, Well, my master needs it. And they go, Oh, oh well, by all means, take the donkey's colt. And it just, it's very odd. Um, but I guess one takeaway uh, is that Jesus knows what he's doing. Mm -hmm. And in this moment, he definitely knows what he's doing. He's all about this moment. He's been teaching them, preparing them for a long time that he's, he's coming here to do this very thing. Uh, and it's, is to become the king. Uh, 
Uh, he's going to be riding in as the conquering uh, savior. Um, and I guess that hasn't changed. You know, he, he, Jesus still knows what he's doing. He is the conquering savior. He is the king. Should pay attention, even if he tells us to do something that seems a little far-fetched, a little strange. I don't get it. Uh, he knows what he's about. Scott? Also, just that the Lord can put in a number of pieces in place. Uh, and it's our job to be one of those pieces. And if we refuse to, like Esther was told, you know, if you don't step up, you know, the Lord can do it through somebody else. But you think of Philip and the eunuch and the circumstances, you know, having Philip come up right from the guys at Isaiah 53. And so just Lord's in control and he can put pieces into place wherever he wants. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing to notice kind of in this, uh, this is getting into the last week of Jesus's life. And so it's really curious to kind of compare how things are going here. Um, this this event, I think, is either six, five or six days before uh, Passover, um, before the, the crucifixion and that night when Jesus is arrested. Um, and it's just interesting to notice the crowds and kind of the, the state of the city whenever Jesus gets here. And then six days later, what the state of the city will be like uh, in relation to how they feel about Jesus and who he is. Granted, that will be kind of stirred along by the high priest and, and the crowds and things. But um Mob mentality, I think, is really powerful in both directions. Um, yeah. It's easier yeah. to do things that are praising and glorifying God when you're around people that are praising and glorifying God. And it's easier to do things that are against God when you're around people that are against God. And that's really obvious here in this chapter. I mean, everyone is shouting, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, quoting all these prophecies and Psalms and, and things about Jesus. And, uh, you know, Matthew says they were all saying he's he's a great prophet from from God and and honoring him and throwing down palm leaves or, or whatever it is uh, to somehow honor him, give him the red carpet treatment. And less than a week later, they kill him. <laughs> like, whoa, makes a big difference um, who, who you're around and and what direction the crowd is pushing in. Justin? One of the things that if I were studying this with someone um, who wasn't familiar with the gospel story, or maybe they were looking for reasons to believe, um, there, there are plenty of occasions where Jesus seems to be in a situation that's outside the control of an ordinary man. You, know, you can't control where you're born. Uh, you, you can't control uh, a lot of things that happened to you in life. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, which was what was prophesied. Uh, he was raised in Nazareth, which was prophesied. There's just a lot of things that happen that are outside of any ordinary human control. Um, and so we might think, if I were looking for a reason to disbelieve in the story, we might think, well, Jesus wasn't really trying to put himself forward as the Messiah. He's not trying to claim that he's the Christ. But on this occasion, it seems like he does something that's very intentional. Uh, Zechariah 9 talks about the one who's coming, who's humble and mounted on a donkey. Um, this is a fulfillment of a very specific prophecy. And Jesus is making a very, very confident claim that he is this one who's prophesied. So um, you can't have it both ways. You can't say, well, people just made of Jesus what they wanted to make of him. Or Jesus was a fraud. And he was trying to appear. Um, Jesus here is actually fulfilling all of these things, and he's intentional about communicating that he is the Christ. So uh, I think if I were to sing with someone for the first time, they, they didn't know the Jesus story. I'd want to emphasize that Jesus was very clear about who he was. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
Yeah, that's a good point because you can try to, um, and we've made this point on, on the program before, you can try to take parts of Jesus, but then reject parts of Jesus. And based on who Jesus claims that he is and what he says about himself, you can't do that. <laughs> you, you can't take some of what Jesus says if you really believe who he says he is, which he is that. So it's hmm. a powerful point. Quick question. Um, Hosanna. Uh, anybody want to talk about what that means exactly? Yeah, it doesn't mean Lord save or, or oh, Lord save. It's kind of, if I remember correctly, I think it's like a almost a request of, of God. Uh, Lord, please save us. And it's they're applying that to Jesus as the Savior. I don't know if that's 100% accurate, but that's... That's, that's what I've understood. Yeah, that's what I've understood too. Yeah. It's interesting that they're they're asking this carpenter peasant type guy who's riding in on a very insignificant steed, saying, mm-hmm. "Please save us!" Uh, mm-hmm. When there are Romans all around them, uh, just the, the expectations for Jesus's power, the crowd swelling with this anticipation uh, is pretty significant. And Jesus mm-hmm. has fought up to this point to prove that he could save, uh, and and the way he's appearing. Uh, it's just it's a startling image that he comes in as a conquering savior. Uh, they're crying out for the salvation, but he's, I don't know, he's just mounted on a donkey's colt. The humility mm-hmm. of our impressive. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Cool. Uh, anything else you guys want to point out through that story through verse 11? <clears throat> All right. Mark kind of takes a, an interesting turn here then and how he orders at least the story. You get kind of the story, this next story broken up in two with a story in the middle, which Mark often does. I don't know if that's a favorite writing style of his or, or not. Um, so I don't know when you guys want to read through, uh, I guess we can read through verse 19 and we'll just talk about 12 through 14 quickly. But uh, yeah, yeah, I can do that. Uh, verse 12 through 14 is going to connect uh, to 20 through 25, but there's this middle story that makes sense of the outer story this frame story so verse 12 on the following day when they came from bethany he was hungry and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf jesus went to see if he could find anything on it when he came to it he found nothing but leaves for it was not the season for figs and he said to it may no one ever eat fruit from you again and his disciples heard it and they came to jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple and he overturned the tables of money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. Chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out to the city. All right, yeah. So we, we pointed out verse 12 through 14 uh, it kind of starts this weird story where Jesus curses this fig tree that doesn't have any fruit on it. And he says, but no one ever eat from you again. And it just says the disciples heard it. And you're kind of like, okay, like that seems a little extreme. <laughs> um, don't really get why Jesus. Especially was, since it's not the season for figs anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, okay, like doesn't really make a whole lot of sense, but Mark will expound on that a little bit later. And and right. I'm with you, Justin, what you said. I think how Mark kind of organizes this, the middle story helps make sense of the the sandwich pieces, the fig tree story and what's actually going on here. Um, so they, they go on from that place, from where the tree was, go into Jerusalem, and Jesus gets in the temple. 
and you see Jesus like you've never really seen him before. <laughs> it's like, whoa. Um, again, an extreme story, <laughs> extreme reactions here. This one makes a little bit more sense to me, though, than the than the fig tree. Um, he gets in the temple and uh, he starts flipping over tables and driving people out. Um, people that are selling pigeons and things that are there. Maybe we can talk about briefly like what exactly they were doing and why Jesus responds in this way. But at least from his words in verse 17, he says, you have made the house of my father a den of robbers. Um, this should be a place of prayer, a place of communication with God, a place of worship, and you've made it a den of robbers. So their activity was robbing people. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know, do you, when do you guys want to explain like, how that was happening and and maybe how this the you know, money changing stations were set up and and what we know about that yeah so there was it, i've paralleled it to if you've ever gone to disney world or hershey park or something and tried to get lunch inside the venue mm -hmm. you don't pay market prices you pay these crazy prices and that's what was going on so if you go back you know centuries and centuries before when a lot of uh, Jewish people were farmers from, you know, five, 10, 20 miles away. If you need to go to the temple and bring a spotless lamb, where are you going to get that from? You're going to look in your flock, you're going to pick out one that's good, and you're going to take it. In the first century, more Jews lived outside of Palestine than in Palestine. That's why whenever Paul goes to a town, what's the first thing he does when he goes to a town pretty much anywhere? Goes to the synagogue. Yeah, he goes to a synagogue. There's a dispersion already. And the Bible refers to dispersion. They're all, all over the place. When these people come back to Jerusalem, you know, if you're a seller of purple in, in uh, Philippi, you don't have sheep. And it's not very convenient to bring it with you on the trip. And so you get to Jerusalem. Well, guess what they have for sale? Pre-approved sacrifices. I mean, they sacrifices. Uh, to give you an idea, Josephus records an example of the reform later. So Gamaliel, who was Paul's, uh, the guy that trained Paul, he was president of Sanhedrin. After him, his son became president of Sanhedrin. When the son was president of Sanhedrin, he instituted some reforms which brought down the prices. Josephus, who sometimes exaggerates, said it brought down the price of a sacrificial bird at a rate of 100 to 1. So, again, if you're, if you're out somewhere and you want to buy a bottle of water and it's a dollar, you're inside Hershey Park and you want to buy a bottle of water and it's $100, that's the kind of thing that was going on and of course you couldn't have been there without permission and probably kind of a commission you know etc from the sadducees whose party ran the temple the chief priest uh the high priest and such and so no doubt making money off of this and this is how jesus handles it yeah, yeah. so jesus is really upset uh, about you know cheating people and uh, even more so cheating people whenever they're trying to worship God in God's house. Um, it's even almost more more despicable um, than just cheating someone, you know, in some other venture or something like that. Um, and, Justin, and are you going to Yeah, this practice of, of purchasing an offering was actually prescribed by God back in Deuteronomy 14. You know, if even if I lived in Nazareth, let alone 
I don't know, Italy, <laughs> uh, if I were a Jew coming to offer a sacrifice, by the time I got my unblemished animal to Jerusalem, it might not be worth very much because it'd be you know, pretty tired and worn out and kind of scraggly looking. Uh, so he had prescribed back in Deuteronomy 14, you know, at, at the time of your offering, you go and you bring up money with you and you buy a sacrifice and you offer it. Um, so even if they hadn't been scalping people, perhaps, um, the practice itself was approved but the fact that they're doing it in God's house, um, that's that's not what this place is for. Even in the constructing of a temple in the first place, at least Solomon's temple, they didn't even use hammers on site. Uh, it was considered a holy site. And uh, so we want this a place where people can worship without distraction. And so Jesus comes in. It's interesting in verse 11, uh, earlier when he had arrived to the temple, he kind of looks around, surveys the scene, but it's late. So he says, I'm going to deal with this tomorrow. Um, and I wonder if that was, you know, partly on his mind when he hits the fig tree. He's just like, man, this fig tree, it wasn't the fig tree. It was what, what he knew he was getting ready to go see. Uh, he's already, his temper uh, is roused by this. Um, this is, I think, probably a favorite passage for some people. They say, look, even Jesus got angry. But his anger isn't for himself. His anger is for the people who are trying to draw close to God and they can't. Uh, and for God, who uh, is, I, I think God's being robbed, even in verse 17. The people are, but but God's being robbed because the temple is not being used to glorify God. It's being used to serve people. Mm -hmm. uh, so Jesus is angry, not for his own sake, but for God's sake. And he gets violent, uh, does no harm to anyone, but he protects people's ability to, to show reverence to God. Um, so his anger, yes, he's angry. Um, I don't know that I'm often angry like this, though. I'm usually angry over personal offense. Jesus is angry when God is offended. Scott? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is, uh, there's a couple of times at the end of Nehemiah, we see Nehemiah being really forceful, but he was the governor. And, and there were some people that should have been obeying God that weren't. And Jesus here is the son of God. Uh, so there's a time and a place for this, but it's usually not the time and the place for it. It's usually not our responsibility. And it's in neither case is it about Jesus is personally being uh, mistreated or Nehemiah is personally being mistreated. Mm -hmm. uh, also, let's clarify, I think where these things were going on. They're not in the actual temple. So Herod has expanded this building. You remember during the time of Christ, I say this has been being built for 46 years. When I was young, I thought that meant it took 46 years of building. They still were building when the Jewish war started in 66. Uh, according to Josephus, 30,000 people were laid off when the Jewish war started. So this massive thing, the, the temple grounds, the uh, whole complex is like, I think, 16 football fields, if I remember correctly. At a certain, and out there you have Solomon's porch, you have the Royal Stoa. On the south side, you have the steps where Gamaliel taught. North side, you have the Tower of Antonia where the Roman soldiers are up there. At a certain point, you've got a low wall, and Gentiles can't go past that. Then you have you go into the court of women where the treasury is, 
then you go in where Jewish men can go. So only Jews can go past the wall. And only men can go past the court of women. And then only priests into the holy place, only high priests into the uh, most holy place once a year. Where these words, I understand, was, of course, not in the most holy place, not in the holy place, not in the sacrificial region, not in the court of women, not even within this boundary. It's out here where Gentiles could be, because you remember there's also money changers. I could be wrong on this, but if I remember correctly, the reason they're changing money is because you've come from Italy and you've got some money. Guess what's on the money? Caesar. The image engraven of Caesar, and they don't want that going into the sanctuary, so you can change money for something that doesn't have that. That's my understanding. Mm -hmm. But it's part of the complex, and this complex, which is there to facilitate the service of God, has been turned into a den of thieves. Uh, they're, they're not just appropriately selling something. So it's kind of like some of the verses in the Old Testament about the rich oppressing the poor. Uh, and that's that's what you've got here going on again. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, and just to echo one of the things that, that um, Justin said uh, about kind of noticing the anger of Jesus here, it, it stands out in this last week when when God's temple is being abused and mistreated jesus is upset in less than a week when his temple is abused and mistreated he's calm and collected and and doesn't lash out that there's a lot of self-control um whenever he experiences that and that, that echoes the point like what james says in james one the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of god that this anger that jesus has here is not selfish at all um it's it's very focused on the father and and his will and uh, his house being being tainted and other people being mistreated and things like that so cool all right so that's that story uh then we get back after that into the rest of the story about the fig tree um so in verse 12 through 14 jesus curses this fig tree that didn't produce fruit they go into jerusalem jesus clears out the temple and then they pass by that same tree in verse 20. It says, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered the saying and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered him, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he has says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. All right, so some interesting instructions that Jesus gives. First, I think just to relate this story, and we've already referenced this, but to make it really clear, the what's happening with the fig tree and not producing fruit, I think mirrors what's happening with God's people. And that's why Jesus is frustrated and upset and why he does what he does in cursing the fig tree. That seems to be the primary application, primary point that if you're not bearing fruit, you're not, you're not needed. <laughs> you're, you're not worthless. You're only good for being thrown into the fire, which Jesus references that a few other times. And that's what God's people were doing. They, they were bearing bad fruit and corrupt and, 
cheating people and so he's throwing them out uh, into the fire kind of as it were so that kind of connects the stories but Jesus takes that that moment of Peter's observation where he says hey what you said happened <laughs> that's impressive and he goes on to teach some more things uh, about faith and making requests to God and kind of a secondary application at least that's how I see it um, so I don't know what, what do you guys want to point out about what Jesus says here this image of looking for fruit it's uh, it's a common one. God's used it before. Back in Isaiah 5, he has Isaiah preach this parable uh, about a, uh, a vineyard that the beloved plants, and he builds a wall and builds a tower and the wine press and all that, uh, and then it doesn't bear good grapes. It bears wild, sour grapes, uh, and God tears down the vineyard. Um, in Matthew, about the same time, Matthew records that Jesus tells a parable about the tenants in Matthew 21. Uh, where same thing happens. A master builds a vineyard, um, leases out to some tenants, and they won't give him his fruit. And so you know, what God's looking for is fruit. Some of us are really good at growing a bunch of nice, shiny-looking leaves, and, and we look healthy and look strong. Um, but when Jesus comes looking for fruit, you know, there's, there's nothing on it. Uh, and so, I don't know, often I'm more concerned with the appearance of things uh, than I am with the actual character development and bearing the fruit of the Spirit and being pleading to Christ uh, than I should be. Uh, Jesus talks about, uh, you know, looking for fruit in John 15. And uh, if, if we don't bear fruit, he's going to cut us off, throw us away. Uh, it's not a pretty picture. It's a pretty extreme picture. But I think that's the point here is, is we've got to get this extreme idea settled in our mind that we need to be pleasing to Jesus. If, we, if we're not producing fruit, then there's really no hope for us. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, good point. So what about this, what Jesus says in response to, to Peter? Peter says, wow, uh, what you said happened. And Jesus says, well, what you say will happen too if you believe. So, you know, like, well, what are we supposed to do with that? You know, oh, great. If we have a lot of, if we have enough faith, we can topple mountains and make anything that we want come true. And and God is almost kind of this genie that we can rub the bottle and get our three wishes and it, it happens. You know, is that Jesus's point or what's he trying to say? Well, let's, let's look at uh, the apostles and some things that they said. Um, Paul. Paul is going to say to Bar Jesus, you're going to be struck blind. Mm -hmm. And he is. But Paul has a thorn in the flesh, which he personally wanted to be removed. And he prayed and prayed and prayed. And so, no, you've got my grace. And, and that's enough. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, it, it wasn't there, like you said, genie in a bottle thing. But when, uh, when he said you're going to be struck blind, for a season that guy got struck blind for a season mm -hmm. which by the way could have been a favor to him yep. you notice he got struck blind temporarily and the text said he had to find somebody to lead him about by the hand but sounds very familiar about that what happened to saul yeah when saul had been an opponent of christianity this is the very same thing that was used uh one of the things to bring him around mm -hmm. uh, so yeah. If that sorcerer had been wise, he would have paid attention to it like Paul did, but apparently he wasn't. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's this. It, 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 go ahead, Justin. Well, I also 
even in verse 22 here, Jesus says, have faith in God. So the, the trust, the confidence has to be in him and his rule, his will. So it's not me looking around thinking, you know what, I, I bet it would be really good if such and such happened. I'll, I'll work my magical prayer powers and then this thing happens. If that's not God's will to be done and I'm trusting in him, then he gives me the thing that I would have asked for if I'd known what he knows rather than what I actually asked for. Um, but I think the point here is not so much that any mountain you see, God's going to remove if you just ask him. It's that nothing is too difficult for God. If there is a mountain God wants moved, all you've got to do is ask him and he will move it. Um, in, in Jeremiah, uh, God asks or commands Jeremiah to buy a piece of property, even though Jerusalem is about to be <laughs> taken by the Babylonians. And Jeremiah says, I'm not so sure this is a good idea. Yeah. And, and God says, look, is anything too difficult for me? Um, and I think that's the response that we're meant to have here is, you know, we're amazed by God's power and then we don't pray like we should. Uh, we we yeah. be dependent on God. Yeah. Yeah. So there's really two different directions that you can go, which are, which are both wrong. Either not really having faith in God, not believing that he's capable of doing things. And to that person, we need to remember what Paul says in Ephesians 3. God is right. able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or even think. He he can accomplish his will how he wants right. it, his good and perfect will. We need to trust in that and, and believe that it happens. And Jesus echoes that idea in verse 24. Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it'll be yours. Like it's as good as already done because it's God's will. So so believe that that happens. On the other end of the spectrum, we can think, great, God can do anything. I want him to do everything I want. And to that person, we need to think about James 4. Um, you know, you ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. God is smarter than you. His way is better than yours. And we need to trust in his will, not, you know, trying to push our will uh, when we have such a limited understanding of things so often. Um, so, um, so yeah. The other thing that stands out here and what Jesus says to me is verse 25, which shows up multiple times across the gospels that the importance of this principle um, where he says, when you, when you stand praying, make sure that you forgive anyone that's wronged you so that God will forgive you. Um, and the alternative is often mentioned in passages like this. If you don't forgive, God won't forgive you. Um, that's a really important concept that Jesus brings up a lot when he talks about prayer and communication with God and how God feels about us. Um, how we treat others or or the mercy we decide to show to others is a, a determining factor on the mercy that God will show us, mm -hmm. which should give us some pause for thought and go back and think about, am I bitter or resentful towards someone and unwilling to forgive them? How does God feel about that? He's very clear how he feels about that. It's It's like spitting in God's face, like, thanks for the free gift. Now I'm going to go out and do what I want kind of mentality, like the parable of the unforgiving servant, Jesus tells in, uh, in Matthew 18. And uh, so that's an important concept. Jesus emphasizes it over and over again. You want to communicate with God. God is capable and he wants to give you things, including yeah. forgiveness. But you have to measure up to his, his standards and what he said that you have to do as well. One more thing before we move on. Um, it, it may also be that one of the mountains that God would move is forgiveness you know it, it may be that we find it really difficult god you want me to forgive him you, you expect me to 
to show mercy to her. Do you know what she's done to me? Um, that's a mountain. You know, some, forgiveness feels like death. Mm -hmm. It feels mm -hmm. like killing off a part of myself that says I need, I demand vengeance, justice. Um, but God has already done the, the work of justice by giving us Jesus. So we've got to see that mountain removed and, and give that forgiveness. So mm -hmm. it's an interesting connection between this point and where we just saw Jesus, where he's coming in and he's, you know, driving people out of the temple. But that's one of the same. You know, it's the same God. Um, he wants people to come close to him. And that's why he's so upset. He wants mercy and forgiveness. He wants the temple sacrifices in that time. Uh, and he wants us to come close. So forgiveness, uh, Jesus Jesus is angry when we don't, uh, don't bring the way to mercy. Mm -hmm. yeah. The next section, uh, 27 through 33, is uh, directly connected with all this. You want to look at that one next? Yeah, yeah, I can read that. Um, so verse 27 says, And they came to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man, they were afraid of all the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Uh, it's a really interesting story. I think a lot to learn from... Uh, from this interaction, Jesus gets to the temple, and the, this the last few chapters of Mark will just be kind of on repeat. Jesus being confronted by the scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests and challenged, and that's especially chapter twelve uh, will happen a lot, trying to trip him up or catch him in some way, trying to destroy him. Like it has been their theme through all their time, really against Jesus. Um, but they they just come straight and challenge him. Just no tricks, no. No fighting. They say, "Why are you doing what you're doing? Tell us who gave you the right. <laughs> you know, who, right? Who gave you the right to do what you're doing?" Um, I don't know. It seems do like kind of a fair question. Go ahead, Justin. Yeah, especially. Um, I wonder. Do you suppose this isn't so much about the miracles or the teaching out around Galilee, but about what he had done in the temple the day before? Like, yeah, yeah, um, I would think so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if, if I came over to your house. Uh, and you know, went to your bedroom and started shuffling through drawers and saying, "You know what, man? We're gonna move some furniture in here." And I just start like moving your bed from one wall to the other wall. And you know what? This bed doesn't even belong here. I just like yeah. take it apart. And put, like, if, if TJ, your wife, were to come through and see me doing this, she'd be like, "Uh, Jonathan, could you get in here?" <laughs> yeah. uh, and and what Jesus does here is fantastic because it, it'd be like you coming in saying, "Justin, who do you think you are?" And I'll say, look, that's not important right now. I'll, I'll answer your question. Just help me move this bed first. <laughs> Jesus acts like he owns the place. Uh, and it's because what he had said earlier in verse 17, quoting uh, Old Testament scripture here, he says, you know, my house should be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Now, of course, it's God saying that. Mm -hmm. Jesus here is the son of God. He's got this authority. But he's, he's claiming that this house, this temple is his. Uh, he's got the authority to come in and, and do with it as he pleases. So he he offers to answer their question, but 
basically he's saying, why, why do you want to know? Yeah. 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 And I think that really gets to the point. Jesus um, almost in a way kind of ignores their question because he sees deeper the problem. Even if he told them the truth, right. They wouldn't listen. And they've proven that by how they've treated Jesus, but also how they treated John, which is really interesting. So Jesus brings up John. He says, okay, I'll ask you this question. John came, he was baptizing. Was he sent from heaven? Did he get that authority from heaven? Or was he just a man? Was he just doing it because he wanted to? No authority from God at all. Um, and he says, answer me. You got two choices. Was it from heaven or from man? There can't be in between. And what I think verse 31 should stand out because that immediately shows the type of heart that they have that Jesus already knew that they had. Mm -hmm. When they start discussing it amongst themselves, it stands out to me what they're not discussing. Because that's fine if they want to take counsel with each other. Go ahead. You know, let's let's discuss it. But they're not discussing, okay, like they don't call a huddle and say, okay, guys, what's the right answer? <laughs> they say, okay, guys, how can we get Jesus? <laughs> right. um, and, and they say, if we if we say this, then this will happen. But if we say this, then that will happen. Not this is right and this is wrong. That right. immediately shows they don't care about what's right and wrong, about where the authority comes from. They care about furthering their own their own agendas, their own will, their own you know personal benefits or whatever. And they come to the conclusion that they can't say either one. <laughs> if, right. if, if we say it was from heaven, then we look bad. And if we say he was from man, then we also look bad. <laughs> um, so right. we'll just say we don't know. And Jesus immediately, you know, he, he makes his point. That, okay. If you're not interested in talking about authority, then I'm not going to talk to you about authority. Yeah. Yeah. If, if it really mattered to them, uh, they would have responded differently. Uh, they're basically trying to keep from looking stupid here. Mm -hmm. And if I'm, if I'm studying with someone uh, who's not familiar with the story and we're just, we're walking through this for the first time, I'd like to point out that, that Jesus doesn't agree to our terms. He doesn't come to us and say, look, yeah, I'm happy to answer any questions you have. You know, what, whatever your concerns are, we'll address them. He, he's not coming to us like that. Now, he makes certain demands. He has certain expectations. Now, he's incredibly humble. We saw him on a donkey's colt earlier. Uh, he's associating with the lowly, with the poor, with the sinners. So it's not that he is haughty and refuses to answer our questions. He offers to answer their question here. But we can't come to him just making demands, and and that might be useful too when we're studying with people, is we don't we don't necessarily have to feel like we have to have an answer for every question. What's more important here is the kind of heart that the questioner has, and so if I'm talking with someone who's you know getting used to the story, uh, the question I want to ask and that we need to ask ourselves is what kind of heart do I have where I come to Jesus looking for answers? Am I looking to confirm what I already believe? Or do I really want to know who's in charge here so I can know who to obey? That's the question. Is, mm -hmm. is who, do I obey? who do I owe my allegiance and my submission to? Yeah. Yeah. And going along with what you said, you know, coming with that demanding kind of mentality of like, like you owe me answers, you, you right. owe me an explanation. That's not at all acceptable, especially when you understand who Jesus is. He, he doesn't have to, um, you know, answer your questions. Right. But on the flip side of that coin, I think Jesus does want to answer our questions and help us strengthen our faith and deal with, you know, failings and things like that. He promises the one who seeks will find, the one who knocks, it will be opened 
to them. Um, we had a story just recently and Mark of the, the man that brings his son to Jesus. And he says, Lord, I believe help my unbelief. Right. Um, you know, that, that kind of mentality is much different than demanding an explanation <laughs> no, uh, or demanding it to be my way, uh, that sort of thing. There, there has to be a humility in coming to Jesus and Jesus helps the humble. Um, he, he gives grace to the humble, but the proud, he humbles. Yeah. Um, so one last thing here and I'd love to know what you think about this, but the question they ask, you know, besides their heart, I think it's an excellent question. Verse 29, it seems to me like, uh, whose authority is at stake here? Uh, who's in charge? And, and Jesus's response is such a helpful response where he says, all authority is either from heaven or from men. Uh, and when it comes down to it, uh, when we're thinking about our lives, um, the direction for our lives, answers to spiritual questions, uh, I need to ask the question, is this something that is God-given or is this something that men have come up with? I found that really helpful. What, what do you think about his response here? Yeah, I think that's a, I think it's a cool observation that it's really going to come from one or two places. When you said it in that way, it reminded me of Jesus's words in, in Matthew six. Uh, you can't serve two masters. Um, you've got mammon or or carnality, or you've got God. Uh, you get to you get to pick uh, which master you're going to serve. The other thing that comes to my mind in thinking about that is um, the attitude that we need to have when kind of confronting those things in our lives. Almost this exact same question will be asked by the exact same people to the apostles later on um, when when they right. have have healed the lame man. In Acts chapter three, Peter and John are, are on trial of, to the chief priest and the scribes, and and they say, "By what power are you doing this? <laughs> you know, who gave you the right? Where's your authority coming from?" And Peter has a different response. He doesn't he doesn't answer with a question. He just comes out and he says it by Jesus' authority. <laughs> um, Jesus of Nazareth is the one that made this man walk again. He, he is the <laughs> one by that we are that we're representing that we stand for, and we're not ashamed of that. <laughs> Um, and that should be our response, I, I think. There's things to learn from Jesus's response, but our response should be, I'm going to figure out what Jesus has authorized, and I'm going to stick with that and boldly proclaim that, no matter what yeah. kind of backlash that I get. Um, so, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, that is uh, Mark chapter 11. That last little bit in um, in Mark chapter 11, uh, the the last verse when Jesus says, "Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things." Like I said, that that leads into I think chapter 12. Um, chapter 12 is the big authority chapter in in Mark chapter 11, where all kinds of different people are coming to Jesus and contradicting him, or confronting him, or trying to challenge him, or whatever. And Jesus just has the perfect answer to every single one, um, which is impressive. Again, uh, it really illustrates not only his wisdom, but also his his authority um, uh, as well in, in dealing with those confrontations. Um, but we don't have time this week to get into Mark chapter 12, so we'll do that next time we're in Mark. Um, but I don't know, Justin, do you have anything else you want to say through Mark 11 before we wrap up? No, it sounds good. Just, again, the, the impressive nature of Jesus's authority uh, and his concern for the people that he has authority over. Uh, he's the conquering king, but he's the one who comes in to save. Uh, you, we're not going to find this same kind of package in anybody else. Uh, and, and so from Mark's perspective, he's just helping us to see how great Jesus is. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, just praise Jesus for his care for us. Yeah. Amen.
All right. Well, that's all we have time for this week. I'll wrap up there and pick up in Mark chapter 12 next time we're in Mark. Uh, again, to our audience, thank you for joining us today. If you have any comments or questions about what we discussed today, please let us know. We'd like to discuss that further uh, if you'd like or anything else that you want us to address here on BibleQuest. Visit our website at BibleQuest.tv and we'll be happy to do that in our future programs. But we will plan on seeing everyone next week. Lord willing.